Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where Yoram drinks disgusting green stuff and I judge him for it. <laughs> How's the Waldmeister? What is it even? It's Waldmeister, so this like weird wood rough. And what are you drinking with it? Like vodka? Uh, no, a white rum. I wanted to have vo- uh, vodka, but I realized I don't have any at home. So I'm using like a cheap white rum that I want to finish. Like... I didn't become an alcoholic during the lockdown, but I definitely am finishing like bottles to make room, but like it takes me forever. So I think there was a long period where like we didn't really know what to give you for your birthday. Um, so we just bought you a lot of alcohol. So you have like a lot of gin and a lot of kind of no gin. Actually, I I whiskey we gave that, for a while, but I, I have a say. lot of whiskey um, left, and that's not something that can like drink quickly. Like it's something. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, it's good whiskey, so I want to savor it. But also whiskey to me is not a drink that I can have a lot of. Well, like gin and tonics, you can drink like three to four gin and tonics in a good night uh, when you with friends. I mean, like ages ago, <laughs> yeah. but but drinking the same amount of, of like a good whiskey is too intense for me because of like all of the flavor and smoke and, and stuff. I don't find it as enjoyable. So it takes me forever to finish a bottle, especially on my own, as I'm the only one drinking in this household. Um, so I'm like really, really slowly working my way through them. Yeah, because your wife has taste and doesn't drink whiskey. Yeah. It's horrific. What have you been up to, Deegan? Not much, I would say. Um, 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 yeah, I mean, I think I've discussed already before, like, you know, I've got this whole spring is coming vibe that I'm basically using to fuel myself through the next months. Started planting seeds growing things you know it's all very symbolic and promising and (laughs) wank 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 so that's my that's my current life plan um yeah i i mean that sounds nice we also got some fresh branches um my wife just um bought some from from a shop like some nice is it the one that's that's called like pussy Tails? Pussy willow. Pussy willows. No, yeah, I think pus- I think pussy willow is technically like the grass ones, and I don't know, like the ones on trees. I'm not sure. Yeah, what. they're like woody branches, and they like have fluffy ends that are opening up, and that looks very nice. We have that, and some like fresh tulips, and some other things. So that's really nice and springy, um, and that's oh, it is pussy willow. Yeah, it's it's salic, so it's part of the willow family. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I can I can relate to that. Even though like we had very nice weather a couple of weeks ago, and now it's like back to gray. Like a, a good friend of ours, ours um, who is in Israel now, actually called me on a like a video call the other day, and just in the background I could see like this beautiful blue sky, and I had my background like the gray, <laughs> depressing Berlin clouds. Um, so yeah. yeah. I think that's the thing they don't talk about about being like a, an immigrant in another country or having friends in other countries where. You know, especially like winter in in Europe when the Australians are frolicking on the beach. I think like especially like those really early days of autumn when it's starting to get really gross and grey and depressing here. And then like all of my my friends and family in Western Australia are like, yes, it's now like the first outing of the beach for for the season. And you're just like, okay, you've got like a really solid four months of of happiness and light in front of you. And we have... (laughs) yeah but it's getting better like it's one of the things that are getting better right now so that's nice yeah um i also like i didn't really do much like i the one uh thing that i i did was just earlier today i wanted to play the guitar but i also had to to read um uh, an article that i wanted to read and then it so i started singing the article to myself and it was a fun exercise it was 
really like this is borderline insane definitely sitting here and reading like it was it wasn't a, um, a scientific article it was like about science communication but then like breaking down the lines like reading them aloud and playing like the same four chords in a row were you playing uh, the the chords for wonderwall because that would be kind of beautiful, no right no no they were more like uh, minor chords uh not, no n nothing from no specific song just like something And yeah, but it reminded me like last time we had like all of the whale fall thing that that um, got me really um, on no, this all trip. of the whale just so dismissive of like the whale fall truth. All of I think we're gonna need to like have proper terminology used. All of the whale fall thing. <laughs> yeah, we we uncovered the whale fall whale fall truth, um, uh, and that was all about music. Also, and now, by by we he means Tegan. Yeah, you un not, you uncovered I mean, it. I support you in your uncovery. Uncovery, <laughs> discovery. Um, oh, that's actually. Um, I mean, it was going to be a fun fact, but um, I'll, I'll talk about it now anyway. The uncovery, discovery. I, I learned. I read something. Um, there was a review that came out at the start of this month in Trends in Plant Science, and it's called "When a Crop Goes Back to the Wild: Feralization." Mm. Have you ever heard of this as a concept? Like, it makes sense, I guess. Um, No, I, but I haven't thought of it for for crop plants. No, I haven't heard of that as a, yeah, as a as a terminology. Like, so I think it makes I think it makes sense um, when you think of like plants that are introduced in a kind of ornamental, like or in the garden, and then they become invasive species. So that to me, that seems like a kind of feralization. But at the same time, those plants were not domesticated as such i mean some of them are kind of a bit cultivated to have pretty flowers but they weren't domesticated in the same way that like our crop plants are um but this is like a bit more referring to yeah something like a crop plant that has been really like broken by human hands and then it sort of escapes and makes its way back into the wild which is i think kind of a beautiful tale of of rediscovery and self-identity for these plants what, what kind of crop plants are doing this are we talking like corn or wheat or is it something like more obscure because i can't really imagine like one of these like high performance wheat varieties surviving on their own like they're sort of yeah so apparently so far one of the only detailed studies about this is about a rice species it's called weedy rice um, and it's basically, yeah, it it's used to be a species that was grown in the area and it's kind of like gone back to its roots and is, you know, escaped. Um, it's potentially crossed with some other plants to get like new traits, um, but it also had to... So like the, the example they use here, which I think is really interesting, and this is kind of what you sort of hinted at, like domestic plants have certain characteristics and to become free again they would have to lose those characteristics and the most obvious one is that we make it so that plants can't drop their seeds so most plants they want to drop their seeds because dropping the seeds is what lets the seeds hit the soil and then make the next generation as it turns out we usually want to eat the seeds so we want them to stay inside um, the plant And so in order to be free again, these plants have basically had to, like, break the thing that prevents them from dropping their seeds. So um, there's an allele called SH4, um, which basically prevents shattering. So shattering is this, like, opening up of the seed plod to release the seed. 
Um, and there's like a domesticated allele, so that's the one that like is preventing the the shattering. And these weedy rice, these feralized rice, they still have that domesticated allele, so theoretically they should not be able to shatter in the proper way, but they seem to have maybe had different mutations in the loci that kind of fixed the problem somehow. Like, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like, I thought about uh, other things like nutrient demands or um, susceptibility to certain diseases that often come as sort of a negative side effect when selecting for a specific trait, like, I don't know, having a lot of grain weight. Um, but then in the selection process, unfortunately, you get also things like being more susceptible to certain kinds of like fungus disease that the wild plants in the the habitat sort of evolve with and are kind of resilient to, but the, the crop plants aren't that as much. And I would have thought that they immediately get eaten by pests, but it's a very good point that they just on a sort of reproductive pathway, they are hindered and, and can't be as efficient as a wild plant that just makes a ton of seeds and drops them everywhere and then spreads and increases its population size. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it looks like there's not a yeah, it looks like there's not a lot of research on this still. So like, I'm just having a look at the the paper now as we're talking, and it's kind of like it's possible this, but it's also possible this. So yeah, they seem to have a mixture between like domestic and wild. Like there seems to be some sort of genetic mixing going on there, mm -hmm. and maybe these like feral plants also have the herbicide resistance from the the genetically cultivated, but. It's unclear if that's because they've like bred with those guys who had the resistance and passed that on, or if they've like required resistance some other way. Like these these kind of things are not clearly known. But in animals, one of the examples they they have in the paper is is dingoes. So dingoes were like domesticated dogs that then sort of became wild again oh, okay. um, in Australia. So that's kind of the the equivalent. But yeah, okay. interesting, huh? Yeah, cool. Yeah, I also didn't know about the dingoes. I thought they are similar to um what's in the uh, northern north america there is also like this wild dog like coyotes i thought they're like coyotes mm -hmm. um which i think are not feralized domesticated dogs um i mean obviously i <laughs> don't know much about this i mean they're australian but they're not cats, so I've not historically cared. Um <laughs> historically it, this is an ancient lineage of dogs found in australia yeah, maybe one of our listeners knows. Like, if you know more than we do, just, like, write us a message. Wow. And then do our homework, please. It's the problem with doing the fun facts at the um, the top of the, the podcast. It becomes immediately clear that we don't know what we're talking about and that I'm, like, furiously Wikipediaing. Look, I, I have something that says the dingo is regarded as a feral dog because it descended from domesticated ancestors. Okay. But I do not understand why. Okay, <laughs> then I'll, I'll, cool. I'll save that fact with like a little note of being like, be cautious about this fact. Like maybe don't spread like, it. Like honestly, everywhere. this wiki article is like, it's like a twenty-page wiki article. I don't have that much time in my day to be reading facts about what effectively are dogs. To be honest, guys, we'll put the link in. Just like Google Wikipedia dingo for in your own time. <laughs> you care. Shall we talk a little bit more about plants? I mean, we started talking about plants, but let's talk some more about plants. It's the paper of the week. And this week, you chose a paper, Tegan. What did you choose? 
Um, the paper is called No Effects on Selective Maturation of Fruit Traits from a Bird Dispersed Species, Sambucus racemosa. Um, it's by Koyama and Tashiro, um, published in Plants, I think, earlier this month. And Sambucus racemosa, that rings a bell for me. Like, I'm very um, botanically knowledgeable. Um, that's elderberry, you- right? <laughs> <laughs> It rang no bells to me and I was imagining something more Apple-like. So I think like the reason I, I picked up on this paper from the title, I should mention I didn't read it before I told Yarn we were doing this for the podcast this week. Um, I picked up on it because like, I guess I was like in my mid to late 20s when I was informed that when we when we make crops, like when we have apples and stuff like that, they they produce large apples that we eat by selectively aborting. So you have like this this amount of apple flowers and to get the big fruits, you have to like remove all the other apple flowers and only leave a couple on there. And that way the plant puts all of the resources into just those few flowers and develops like a few juicy fruits. And if you don't do that, you get like many more small kind of crappy fruits. And it's and it's a question like, of um, like energy budget in the end, right? Like the the tree only has so much energy to spend, and if they spend it equally on all of their flowers, then you get like smaller fruits. And then if you if they spend it on half of the flowers, then they get bigger fruits. Yeah, and this is like something that I didn't I didn't realize that's something that we do normally as part of like our agricultural practices, and it was one of those kind of things of. Like, I know that we are very detached from the way our food is produced in the context of, like, animal meat consumption. That's something that it's like, I'm quite aware of. We don't want to know that animals have horrible lives and dies just for us to, like, feast on their flesh. But to realize that we're also so detached from understanding how, like, basic crops. Like, an apple isn't, doesn't seem that hard. Like, as a tree, there's an apple, you pull it off. It seems like we should understand how that works. And I just, like, didn't know. We're... <laughs> Yeah, and that kind of that was one of those like oh like nobody nobody told me <laughs> I don't have <laughs> yeah yeah but to be fair also like uh, until you told me now that it's the case in apples I didn't know that like I obviously now from the paper I knew that there is also a sort of biological selection process going on but I I wasn't aware that we do it as an agricultural practice um, as much I mean now somebody's gonna write in and say no Tegan you're wrong that's actually not a thing that's ever been done. Um, I can, I can, I've heard something along these lines, but I wasn't really like consciously aware that this happens, but I know that like these, this pruning in agriculture, like if you think tomatoes, you want to prune them to, to channel, to sort of force them to channel their energy in the fruit. Um, you prune grapes, for example, for the same reason. So they don't make a lot of foliage, but instead in, invest the energy in, in the grapes and actually make like sweet fruit. Um, so this is done in a lot of species that are not trees. So I imagine there will be some trees where you do that as well. Um, but yeah, so in the paper, they introduced two concepts where this is not um, done manually by, by people, but where the, the, the plant itself um, chooses where to spend its energy. And um, there are two mechanisms. It's, it's, it's selective abortion, which I thought, I mean... I mean, I only uh, whenever I read the word abortion, obviously I read it in a different political context. Um, 
Uh, but it's like it's the the right specific term here because um, there's fruit abortion and there's embryo or seed abortion. So either the um, the fruit is sort of formed to a certain extent and then uh, some fruits are dropped and some other fruits continue their development and become fully ripe fruit. Or sometimes within a fruit, um, you have a number of the seeds that are deemed high quality by the plant by some sort of internal measure and they get developed further while other seeds aren't developed further. And that sort of makes sure that the seeds that make it they are of high quality, which means they will sprout and germinate and be virile enough to go to the next generation. Um, so they can either drop the entire fruit or they can, within a fruit, only um, drop a certain number of the, the seeds in there um, that actually then which go is, to the next generation. It just seems insanely clever as far as like the way we ascribe intelligence, that ability to... like selectively push out the best of your offspring is pretty yeah pretty amazing and like to go to the level of the seed even that seems yeah that was a f yeah i also found that quite interesting the idea that like if you if you think of an apple i don't know if it happens in apple but if you think of an apple that um from the number i don't know, let's say like 12 seeds in there the plant decides like only maybe before there may be 24 sort of Pr uh, premature seeds in there and 12 of them are dropped and 12 of them make it and the plant selects which 12 have the best chances to actually make it by some sort of internal measure and i find it quite yeah quite incredible because i mean i imagine that's a complex thing to to sort of sense and react to um yeah like the future so ability to, like to germinate we have people who are both angry at us that we know nothing about <laughs> apples because, like, I think you pluck things and you think they have 12 seeds, which is probably not the right number. Um, and we also have people who are angry that we are ascribing intelligence to plants. Obviously, we we are molecular biologists by training and we realize that this is, like, complex networks of, you know, things encoded in genes getting spread out by, by um, effector proteins and molecules and, and chemical messages. But it's still really, really clever, you guys. Like, plants are amazing. That's the takeaway message five seeds in an apple um i'm i'm sparing you all the feedback of writing in it's not 12 it's five seeds it's a we know this because it's a, it's this is like really frustrating riddle um that is told a lot if if you grow up in an english-speaking language i guess yeah, um so it's like a, a house you know a red house with no doors no windows a chimney on top and a star inside and uh -huh. it's an apple because if you cut the apple like um horizontally horizontally like you decapitate it um you've got a star shape from the five yeah. different seeds the five pointed star but i just i just don't it's not a real riddle guys like it's not you can't just call an apple a house and say it's a house like if the there's like a backstory about a worm living in it or something maybe but even then it's not a house he's probably just eating like it's just <laughs> it's not how a riddle should work a riddle should be clever it shouldn't just be like what's <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> like, what's a green feather that that grows and likes light and it's a feather and it's like oh it's not a feather it's actually like a plant leaf ha 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 i tricked you because you believed it was a feather but actually it was obviously a plant like it was never a house all along that's not how we use words in the english language so i, I why are we playing this game granddad why <laughs> <laughs> Okay, there's some like unaired grievances here. I, I, I sense. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah, so back to the paper. They they're talking about these um these two types of abortion that can happen to the entire fruit or just to the twelve seeds inside an apple. So in the paper, they they talking about a hypothesis. Um, it's called the wider choice hypothesis, and it took me a moment to understand it. So I hope I can get it across what it's about. So if you imagine you have two individual plants and. Um, one of the plants is your control plant. There you don't touch it at all. You just leave it as it is. And the other plant, um, you remove some of its fruits of inflorescences. Uh, so the, the, the beginnings of the flowers, like when they start to develop, you remove half of them at random. And then you look at the yield. Um, then what you can expect is that in the untouched plant, the plant itself selects for the best like sort of the best flowers um, to make the best fruit. Um, and then overall, it creates a lot of high quality fruit. But if you thin out the plant, you get less options for the plant to choose which ones to select. So if you imagine like randomly you remove them, like like Thanos in the Avengers movie, mm. um, it doesn't discriminate to like only remove the good ones or the bad ones. You sort of remove equally both yeah, of them. Sometimes you lose really cool characters like the Black Panther and other times you... You just lose that really annoying guy who had the stone as part of his power and was like in love with that other woman and their backstory wasn't really clear. And I just I just didn't feel empathy for them when they died. I was just like, okay, they're gone. Yeah. I don't know that my life is worse. Yeah. And then when you look at the sort of outcome of like the, the movie with the entire cast where you can select the best choices there or the one where half of them were killed and then you have to select the, like the overall quality of all of them, of the remaining ones, you realize they have overall... Um, a reduced quality and that's the wider choice hypothesis I, also, I think we all know that pepper i think pepper should have gone i think we all know that pepper should have gone and she was barely in it in the end i mean she she was just there for completion not for for actual action right i i just imagine like she made it through the 50 percent loss from thanos right yeah she did um or did she i, I only remember her coming back in the I scene like where all of the female I... heroes assemble to kick like the one female villain. She's not villain. even a female hero. She doesn't. She doesn't have any powers. She doesn't do anything. In, like, in Iron Man two, she she had a suit and she had powers. Like she was fighting with the suit just as well as Tony Stark. So she actually got real Tony powers Stark there. Tony Stark made the suit. His power is not just that he wears the suit; it's that he actually made the suit. No, but uh, well, we can go deep into this to you. <laughs> like. I don't know. Like I have too much knowledge about this. Like like all of the knowledge I'm lacking in apples, I have in Avengers. So <laughs> I'm just saying that Pepper Potts is not Tony Stark's intellectual equal and that has like something to say about him. Like that's his life choice, but it's the wrong life choice. Yeah, but anyway, back to back to the paper. Um, so that's the idea of this wider choice hypothesis. So when the plan has a wide choice of things to select, um then it can pick the best ones. And if it has a reduced choice, then it can't pick, like it can't really drop as many bad ones in favor of the good ones. It will also raise some of the bad um, inflorescences. And so you have a lower quality. Um, and that's something that uh, is considered to be species specific. So that sort of goes against what we talked about before with like removing the apple, the flowers from the apple. So you have only good apples. So it might work in apples, but in other plants, it might not work. So, that's what they're trying to to investigate further here in the paper, uh, how much this plays a role. So then the authors were kind of discussing that it makes sense to have this kind of selective seed abortion if you're valuing high numbers of seeds. So if you're like a plant that, you know, has to throw a lot of seeds into the wind, quite literally, like it's maybe um, wind dispersing the seeds, 
or like flinging them out, then it makes sense to try to just like make really like a lot of seeds, but also good quality seeds. So then like you want to be selecting at the, the stage of the seeds. But they were saying like a lot of plants, they're actually dispersed by animals that eat plants and then, you know, crap out the seeds somewhere else. So those plants don't really have a lot of incentive to make less like a certain quality or number of seeds they're kind of focusing more on the fruit itself um yeah and that they um want to test the idea that's the selective maturation process so the the preference of uh, one sort of quality of seeds over the other does not influence the seed number in a fruit in bird dispersed species um as opposed to as you said like the the wind uh, dispersed species and for that, they started doing an experiment, uh, or they did an experiment. They didn't start just start doing it. They did an experiment, and they used uh, Sambucus racemosa, as we said, like elderberry. Um, for our German-speaking listeners, I had to look this up as well. It's Holunder. Holunderblüten. Holunderblüten. Yeah, it's a, a, a nice like syrup that you can make from. Them. And didn't a friend of ours very adamantly um, suggest that people name their children Holunder? Yeah, that was a theme for a while. I think Holunder is is more of a thing in Germany than it is in other places, if I'm completely honest. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's fine. It tastes a bit perfumey to me. It's like yeah. a bit like flower flavored drink, which. Yeah. Sure, it's fine. So they also. Um, yeah, do you want, maybe you want to explain the experiment? Yeah, so they had like a quite simple experiment, honestly. Um, they basically had a control. Um, and then a treatment and in the control they just like left everything as it was and then the treatment they removed half of these like developing fruits just when they've finished flowering they just like yoinked them off the the tree i want to say holunda is a tree is is it a tree or is it a bush maybe it's a bush um bushy tree and then they looked as and then they looked to see how many fruit were set, um, the volume of the, the fruit, and also how many seeds there were per fruit to see if any of these things changed. And yeah, just in case, I think we didn't mention it yet, but elderberry is dispersed by birds. So their idea is that maybe the seed number wouldn't have changed because the birds don't care about seeds. So this shouldn't be something that the plant is like controlling. And what they observed was... Um, uh, they they observed uh, that the number of fruit that set, so the number of fruit that fully developed, did not change a lot between the two. Um, it was a slightly more fruit that developed in the treated plants, so in the ones where they removed inflorescence. However, um, their p-value, so the indicator for the statistical significance, so how trustworthy the result is, or how often, just by chance, you would have to repeat the experiment to get a random uh, separation of these two data sets instead of actually having a true difference between is over the limit of what you would usually consider. It's close to the limit of 0.05, but it's at 0.067 above it. So in most cases, it would not be considered uh, significant. So this is something which I think um, was a bit like a limitation of the study, I would say. So they've got this p-value that's 0.06. And normally we would say to be significantly different we need a value that's smaller than 0.05 which this is not so they they said there's like a trend towards difference but there's not a difference by defined by this significance number of p is less than 0.05 and like to be honest 
the choice to, to say that 0.05 is the number, that is arbitrary. It's something that we've decided as a scientific community. It basically means that like 5% of the time um, you're going to get an observation that looks like something, but it's actually just by chance that that occurred. It's not like a true a true finding. So it's it's something we've kind of decided to go with. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it is widely accepted. And when you have something that looks like a trend towards difference, um, which is what they have here, but you haven't hit that significant threshold, one of the reasons for not hitting the significant threshold can sometimes just be that you don't have enough observations. Um, so this is called a power problem. It basically need, means you need to do the experiment a few more times, collect more data. And then if that trend is true, like with more and more data, you should more visibly see the trend basically. And this, you know, p-value should become significant because you now have enough, if enough um, data to, to see that properly in a statistical way. So I think it is a bit sad here that we don't have the statistical justification because to me, that means the outcome, it's not clear if it is a, like a real outcome by scientific definitions or if it isn't. And I think that could be firmed up by having more observations. But obviously, like, I mean, I do realize that science takes a lot of effort, sci like experimental science, it takes a lot of time. So it's not trivial to say, hey, go out and like do this with 500 more bushes. But that is like a limitation here where we... So, yeah, are there more fruit or aren't there more fruit? We can't really say at this point, I would say. Like, we're not sure. We would need more experiments to really have a strong conclusion. I just want to add that, like, the number of 0.05 is, like, fairly accepted in biology. But in other fields, you might have different values. I know, like, in in studies, like, in fields like sociology, you sometimes have higher um, values because, again, you can't you can't do experiments on hundreds or thousands of people as easily as you can do that on plants or other like biological systems. Um, and in physics, for example, it's much lower. So like anything that we in biology use, yeah. like a physicist looks at that as like, what are you doing? Like this is not significant because they have like several orders of magnitude, uh, stricter rules because they can with like particle physics and stuff, they can do like much more experiment, like many more, like the numbers are much higher and therefore they can be more confident. Yeah, so even though we're using it as like a a way to say, hey, you've we're convinced that what you're seeing is a true effect and not a fake effect, what we're really saying as scientists is we think you've put enough effort in to convince us that there's a true effect. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, like the, the level of effort is different in different fields. Obviously, if you have human, um, like if you're experimenting on humans, so sociology, you're asking questions, you're going to have a smaller sample size than if you have like thousands of Arabidopsis plants. And that's also a discussion that has come even within the field. So... Um, if you're doing something like um, sequencing, like RNA sequencing, where you're looking at like 60,000 mRNA across two or three treatments and you're looking for significant differences there, you just have such a huge number of data that suddenly it's like, well, you know, the chance of having things that are like coming by chance is there's like a quite like if even if it's only five percent five percent of thirty thousand is suddenly quite a large number right so people are saying you know for those kind of um studies when you're using those those kind of tools maybe we should be thinking about how we do p-values a little bit differently yeah it's yeah. a whole debate guys <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like i think there's people who are 
And I'm honestly not very passionate about it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there are people out there who would argue with you for hours about what p-value we're using. And, and I mean, I've seen articles which are like, p-values are wrong, but we're not sure how to replace them, which is like kind of the, the argument for everything, you know, like this whole yeah. democracy is the worst thing we have except for everything else. And I think p-values and like peer review and a lot of things we have in science all <laughs> fall into that. Like it's terrible, but we're not sure how to do this better. So let's just stick with it. Yeah. I, my understanding of p-values is always tied to the other name for it, like the confidence interval. So that you have like it gives you some confidence in your data set. It doesn't mean that you're like a hundred percent sure and that it's you you are a hundred percent certain that it's only this way and no other way. You are confident enough to go out with that statement. Um, and depending on the field that you're working in, this confidence is based on different numbers. But in the end, you just say like, look, I think it's much more probable that it's this. But I have to acknowledge that in like one percent of the cases, I this could be by chance and actually not a real difference anyway back to the paper maybe <laughs> so they did they did like a s experiment where they removed developing fruits from one plant group from the, the treatment they didn't do it from the other they looked to see if there was difference in fruit there wasn't really a significant difference in the fruit number yeah maybe there was like an effect but not significant there wasn't a change in the the seed number within the fruit And there also wasn't a change in the volume of the fruits or how juicy those fruits. So the fact about the fruit volume is actually quite interesting um, that there is no change because in the paper they also hypothesize that there is this idea that um, the fruit size is evolutionary linked to the birds that eat the fruit um, because they can only swallow a certain size of fruit and they want to sort of, the, the birds have an incentive to go to the biggest fruit that they can still swallow. Um, so making smaller fruits means you get less birds. Uh, making too big a fruit means the birds can't swallow them anymore. So you sort of have an optimum size that attracts the most birds, but it's still the birds can still eat the fruit. And um, that's sort of where where we are at with the with the elderberries that they they are at the optimum size for the birds that eat the the, the berries. And therefore, even though you change something in the system by removing this inflorescence, um, seeing no change in the fruit volume goes with the idea is like actually like a, a sort of a positive result um, that there seems to be this evolutionary link between the birds that eat the fruit and the size of the fruit. So yeah, that was the paper. It was no effects of selective maturation on fruit traits for a bird dispersed species, which was Sambucus racemosa or elderflower. Um, yeah, for me, it was super interesting because we learned a little bit about these different mechanisms that the plants have. And also, I found it like kind of interesting that it's it's effectively like a, a null effect. Like they they found a negative result, there wasn't an effect, which is quite rarely published, as we've discussed in the past. So yeah, yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Uh, yeah. Um, Tegan, have you heard about um, the fossil plants that I found a mile deep under the Greenland ice? I have. Yeah, I mean, it was all over uh, the plant science news this week. Like, I'm not surprised that you, that you have heard of it. Tell, tell me more. Um, tell me about that. So yeah, well, Other people might not have heard of it. <laughs> no, I, I think it's enough. Should I You've say no when you ask me those questions? Should I be like, um, no, no, no. no. What is no, it was like one of the things that like when you when you search for plant science news this, this week, it was 
coming up on all of the channels. That's why I wanted to know. I I was quite sure yeah, that you've so heard I of saw it. it on, I saw it on SciTech Daily and it was scientists stunned to discover plants beneath mile-deep Greenland ice and then why this spells trouble. So maybe you can explain to me why it spells trouble. Um, oh, you can tell me this whole story. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> so what they what they did is that they analyzed some cores that were taken from like the from the ice, so the, from ice, ice drilling. Ice cores, yeah. Um, and they analyzed them, and when they did, they found plants in there, and that was very surprising to them because if you imagine like Greenland as a mass of land and ice that pretty much has been permanently under a sheet of ice. You don't expect to see a layer of dirt with some plants just before the ice starts again. Um, <laughs> so that was the Wait, first. So it's like it's it's land ice plant la- ice. So land, technically, ice, plant, it's ice? it's it's uh, land plant ice land plant ice and then a lot of ice for a very long time. Um, so they found mm-hmm. two times when um, the ice must have been uh, melted away. Well, actually, no, that doesn't make sense. Then you wouldn't have, like, I don't know. I don't know if there was ice between the two layers, but they found, like, two events. They found two times when um, they actually were, pl- like, the the land was exposed to the sunlight and there was plants growing there before they were covered in ice again. Um, and I found that twice, like, a million t- years ago and 600,000 years ago, where um, at these two times, the ice sheet of uh, Greenland was, was um, molten away, melted away. Uh, was not there and um that's quite interesting because back then the co2 levels were far lower than they are today and still some climate like some changes in the climate there um led to the melting of the of the greenland ice sheet which tells us not that co2 is not linked to the melting ice but rather that this system is quite sensitive and even without the co2 it can melt and now with like the rising levels of CO2, we're pushing it closer to this like edge where it can melt away or it actually does melt away. I mean, where every year we're losing um, parts of the ice sheet in Greenland. Um, so that's interesting. But what I also liked about the story is that um, like the, the, the way the, the research came to be. Um, so these cores were actually not drilled in the last decade or so, but they were drilled in the 1960s, I think. Um, because the United States built like a military base and they wanted to build it sort of under the ice uh, or in the ice to hide nukes. They were like to the world, they were presenting as a scientific mission. They wanted to set up like a a science research lab um, in Greenland. But what they were trying to do was to hide nukes um, on like a different, like like, I guess away from the mainland of the United States. So you can shoot nukes from where nobody expects the nukes to come from during the Cold War. And during that mission, they drilled like a 1.4 kilometer deep core. Um, and then they stored them in, I think, in Denmark uh, in a freezer. And that's where they were rediscovered in 2017. So decades later, they were rediscovered and then they were analyzed. And during this analysis, they found that um, the ice sheet must have melted away twice in the last million years. Um, I, I feel like you're kind of promoting a pro let's all go to different lands and try to bury our nukes somewhere because it might promote plant science. Is that your agenda? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a sensible approach. Like I think everybody like countries It's actually the only way to discover plants is to um Yeah. To learn something about the earth history. <laughs> First nukes. Like get nukes, try to hide the nukes and then do science. 
as a <laughs> as an accident. It is it is always that argument of like, well, actually, you know, funding the military has given us so many inventions in the past, and it's like, okay, yes, but like, that's because they were funded. <laughs> Like, do you know how much plant scientists or like any scientists would beg for that kind of funding that the military gets? Like, yeah, sure, with funding you did things. Like, well done, you made a microwave. Like, didn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think if if like if that w would have been a real science mission, if the, all the funding would have gone to real science, it wouldn't have taken until today to analyze them. Although it's you have to say years. like back then they, they did some analysis on the cause but they didn't have the the analytic, uh, analytical machinery that we have today to properly date these cores. So they did some observations. This came out as a PNAS paper in the last like couple of weeks. That's like quite a high profile paper to for something that you found at the back of your freezer. <laughs> like that's very impressive and i like to like like maybe everybody should look at the back of their freezers for like some hidden like some forgotten samples from the time somebody tried to hide some nukes well you know like there's in my mind there's this kind of like romantic idea that the people they couldn't go to field work because of the covid pandemic and so they're like okay you know what like we've been putting it off for the last like 60 years let's defrost the like minus 80s like finally it is time we're gonna do it and then like they did this beautiful research and got this paper out of the the <laughs> shitty situation that is the pandemic and, and freezer defrosting like yeah, that we would be a nice story. Tasks. But unfortunately, they discovered them in 2017, so before the pandemic Shut hit. Up, yeah. But <laughs> that would be, that would have been um, the best. <laughs> do you know what type of plants it was they saw? Like, did it say the kind of? I mean, I'm assuming it's kind of something a bit algae-like or a little bit lichen-y, kind of a bit a bit she. Yeah, it's not like a beautiful flowering you know tree it's not like an apple tree under there it's like something yeah i want to say it was a fern but i'm not 100 percent sure um well you know what saying it's a fern kind of nicely segues into the very closely related fact which is um so you're talking about plants found under ice sheets there was also an article that came out on SciTech daily about plants that were found under volcanic ashfall in mongolia i think yeah in in, in mongolia wuda is the the um, province and they've called it the pompeii of prehistoric plants which has just like a beautiful beautiful ring to it um and the i'm gonna try and pronounce the name of this so they're it's literally pronounced no egg so no egger thiales no egger rathiales no egger rathaliales that's i'm not good at scientific names it's really no no rathaliales do you want to try i'm going to like send you the link i want your arm to try and say it because i just don't think it's fair that i have to try and pronounce this can you see it? Noegara no, 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 no Thialis, maybe. Noegara Thialis. Noegara Thialis, probably. Yeah. It's just like, it's one of those things where your mind can't help but see the first words. It's it's very much a German word to me. So, like, a German language has these compound words where they just put, like, five words together. So, like, if you, if you have, like... A big red school bus that becomes like one word where like the big and the red like are, are part of the school bus. I, I, I know I'm not being completely factually accurate here, Johan, so just bear with me. But like <laughs> they make compound words from multiple different words. And the problem is that with that is that you have to 
um, know the individual words in order to pronounce the word. So my favorite is there's something called Geshirukabe, uh, which is like, it, I probably didn't even pronounce that right. Do you want to say it properly, Yoram? No, it was fine. Geshirukabe. Like, yeah. And it's it's the most ridiculous word. And it's, it's one of my favorite words that has ever existed because it has Geshir, which ends with two R. And that means basically your plates, right? Like yeah. your dishes from, from eating. Um, and then Ruk Gabe is the place where you give something back. So like kind of Ruk is like the back part and the Gabe is to give. Um, so it's like the return is, is the, the yeah. word. Um, but this starts with an R as well. So you end up with Gishir Ruk Gabe, where you have three R's in a row, which is just like an insane amount of consonant. And also like having two is already a little bit ridiculous. You guys having three in a row, just bizarre. Um, I mean, but you also... T- to pronounce this word, you don't follow the normal. So, like, German is is very logical in the way you say things and spell things. It's not like English where we make things up and, you know, it's got Greek and Latin and all different roots. It's, it's quite, like, straightforward as far as, like, rules. But when it comes to compound words, the rule is you pronounce it as you would pronounce the two individual words together, which is very confusing unless you know what the two individual words are. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, it doesn't. It's just not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to so be fair, it wasn't like, always like this. Like, we, we changed it, like, in the early 2000s. <laughs> then before we only had, like, if you put two words together and they make three consonants in a row, then you just drop one of the consonants and keep it at two. But as it was sort of confusing you... to all of the other rules that we have, where it's, like, very logical, and then suddenly you say, like, but why, like, there should be three? Why are we dropping one just for funsies? So we st- changed the rules, and now... Um, you spell it like this but i mean there's still people i mean it's been 20 years now there's still people refusing to spell it like that and just to use the two consonants um, i mean i think like is probably not even the best idea like the example like well the, the my favorite example is i maybe yarm you can say it again because i'm sure i'll pronounce it wrong Freiheitsbescheinigung. <laughs> yeah that's also a beautiful thank word. you so meat is to rent. <laughs> Schulden is like what does that even mean? That part. A uh, debt, debt, debt. So where well, I can complain debt. that like debt is spelled with a b that you don't sp- pronounce. Like that's confusing <laughs> <up>. to me. <laughs> meat is to rent. Schulden is debt. Freiheit is like freedom from that. Mission Freiheit. Bescheinigung is just like a form or like a like a like what's the right word like, like a, a confirmation or like a, a slip, slip of yeah. <laughs> slip of paper that like confirms that you have that and i just want to mention that if you're like trying to learn the german language and you look this up in the dictionary that word is not in the dictionary you have to know how to divide the word and then go and look up each individual word in the dictionary <laughs> yeah yeah it's um it's not really nice to people who don't speak the language, especially as this is one of these documents that everybody needs who wants to rent a flat. Um, so pretty much everybody gets in touch with that. Also, like generally German, very easy to pronounce. English, not so much. I guess this is like Latin or Greek roots. Noegorathiales. Um, basically, it's something that looks a little bit like a, a fern. It was... Um, around 300 more than 300 to 250 million years ago so just like a really really long time ago um and they were important in actually forming peats apparently um so they cut like um significant as far as ecosystems go 
and people have 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 known they've existed since the 30s um but they didn't really know where they belonged they've just been kind of like it says uh, kicking them around like a taxonomic football is is the quote that's in here um they look kind of fur and light but nobody really knows um where they belong and now they basically have a little bit more evidence and there's a paper that was also published in PNAS which basically shows that um, they were like a, a sister group of the, the plants and they diversified um, at a certain point. So it has a little bit more detail about their, their origin, um, which also, you know, whenever we hear about how these like ancient plants developed, it might sound really disconnected from what we know now, but it also helps us understand how modern plants became what they are. And, you know, that that whole tree of life, thing. it really puts more pieces in the puzzle. So that's always a really interesting side. Yeah. Yeah. So often when we do sort of current day molecular research and we want to figure out like why, are, like how are two genes related or how does a gene it work in two different species? Um, we use these phylogenetic trees, so the sort of the relationship trees of all the species, and they are like based on on research on on plants that are millions of years old, um, and that help us like to help me to understand like how certain proteins work that uh, are involved in photosynthesis. And I'm not fully like when I'm looking at this, like I'm using this as a, as a tool for myself. But sometimes when you like closely look at the legends, you see like these little labels that say just like MY for like million or MYA for million years ago. And you realize like, yeah, this is all stuff that's based on this sort of research where they figured out like where in the tree something fit in the past based on like fossil records and stuff. And then I can use it now to understand something about the protein mechanics and like how they sort of evolved in different directions and one is like more active in a certain uh, condition uh, than the other. Yeah, so like in the case of these Noagarathiales, um, it looks like they're kind of um, in between a bit the, like the ferns, the kind of spore-based reproduction plants and the, the original seed-based plants, so like gymnosperm, uh, ancient relatives so it's, it's kind of important to understand how how plants went from making spores to making seeds this is stuff we we don't really know how that those came about so yeah they're significant in that way uh, i have a, a short story um uh, about a forever plant um that faces an uncertain future and this forever plant oh, no. is uh, seagrass and uh, what i didn't know is when i when i read this this story is that seagrass has this amazing cap capability of soaking up carbon. Um, sort of a, a patch of seagrass has 15 times more carbon uh, fixation capability um, than a similar piece of the Amazon rainforest, which we usually consider sort of a, a major carbon sink. Although there's also a story about how that's changing, unfortunately. But um, the seagrass is like amazing at storing carbon um, and it drops it in the sediments and therefore um yeah it binds it in a way uh that it, it can't go uh, go back in the atmosphere easily anymore however um like so often um we are very good at breaking this delicate system because seagrass um is also quite slow growing um you find large patches of it for example in the mediterranean but also in many other places but the one um that's part uh, like the focus of this article here is in the mediterranean and um this is under threat from like several factors. 
One is like tourism, people going out with their boats and dropping their anchors are destroying the patches of seagrass, like ripping literally big holes into it that take forever to close again by, by, by growing, growing shut. So that's a major problem. And the other problem is that um, the seagrass has an upper temperature tolerance of about 28 degrees Celsius of water temperature. So when the temperature goes above that, it doesn't immediately die, but it's slowed down even further and it's already slow growth. So together with like the continuous damage that we are giving, like providing to these patches of seagrass and slowing it down because of climate change, um, there is a chance that the 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 sea grasses can't really recover and can't bind as much carbon as we need it to bind. However, the fact that it binds so much carbon can also be a good thing, um, as sort of for its preservation because it gives us an incentive to protect it. If we would factor this in and put a price on the carbon that it binds, like the the countries around it would um like th th that have shores around the patches where it grows, they would have a strong incentive to protect the seagrass because they could like put that into their CO2 balance and say like, look, we are protecting the seagrass. The seagrass is binding a lot of carbon. Um, therefore, we don't have to pay as much money or we don't have to compensate as much other carbon expenses. Um, and this is the idea. I mean, this is all like, there's nothing of that like in, in, a, in a political rules yet, um, but that could be a way to protect these patches. No, there there is a really big um, governmental, political, like there is this big push to kind of appreciate and value blue carbon. So that's like not just these seagrasses, but like um, sort of any carbon fixing that happens in the oceans and, and on coastlines. So mangroves are like a really big um, player here. So that's definitely getting increased um, attention yeah. and and governments and, you know, policymakers are becoming aware that these need to yeah. be protected. Um not yeah. just because, yeah, as you said, they have like value as a habitat and as a plant themselves, but because they're doing this this huge ecosystem service for us. Yeah, yeah. What I mean is that it's like the countries can't like it's not yet in the balance. Like it's not accounted for yet in sort of the carbon balances, and therefore it's the incentive isn't there yet to have strict rules about protecting them. Although, as you said, yeah, it's it's becoming more and more a focus, um, and hopefully we'll soon see policy changes to protect those. Okay, so it's not exactly a fun fact, but I think we should just mention it briefly. Um, we're recording on a Thursday and it's quite relevant to kind of what's going on in the news today in the US, but also like across um, other parts of the world. Um, so this is the the rising expression of anti-Asian sentiments. So, you know, it's not that these haven't existed before, but it's becoming um, more violently apparent, really sadly. Um and we just wanted to to mention there's a a worldview to kind of discuss some of these how this also has appeared in science in the past. Um, it's in nature. It's called to keep nationalism in check, nurture science solidarity. The byline is Chinese researchers are caught between Western bias and pro-government messaging. It's written by Joy Zhang. And I would really recommend you go and read that article. Um, I think it's kind of explained a little bit already in the title and the byline what that's about but we did want to mention like both Yoram and I have sort of seen that this is still really apparent in academia that there is this problem with how we treat different types of foreigners and um, different races of people and there's both really obvious negative racism so like um, 
with Asians, especially with, with, with Chinese people, there's this, this, you know, can this science be trusted, which is just really not an appropriate thing to, to, to put on a group of people. It's just, and for scientists to do it, it's completely unacceptable. Uh, and there's also this so-called like positive racism, this like expectation that, okay, you're this group of people and therefore, you know, it's acceptable to ask you to work longer hours or to, you know, do, uh, you know, more backbreaking tasks. And again, to completely unacceptable. Um, but it it is apparent in, in academia and just there's a few articles about this now. So please go and just check them out and, and think about what you can do in your system um, to kind of hopefully make this slowly a better place because, you know, we're in 2021 now. This is just, this is just, yeah, awesome, yeah. honestly. Um, and there's also, there was an article that came out in Vice uh, just you know, maybe a couple of days ago. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's also, um, it's called The US is Building Walls Around Science and We're All Poorer for It. And it's sort of discussing how the US is separating itself from China in the scientific um, point of view. So this is like back in 2020, there was kind of these uh, government like arrests of people who had external funding from China while also working in the US and not declaring that. And that kind of has been a, a big deal in the last year or two. So... Yeah, I haven't fully read that yet, but I think that could be also something that's quite interesting. Yeah, thank you. We'll put all the links um, down in the show notes to this to this episode, so you can have a read for yourself. Now and now for something a lot sweeter, and by sweeter I mean literally sweeter. Um, so there was a publication that came out in Scientific Reports. Um, I guess that's how I found it but i was like this the publication is just um describing how to cultivate a certain plant which produces a fruit in a new environment so it's originally found in the southern parts of china it's quite difficult to propagate it takes a long time to germinate and and, and it's difficult to grow and they're just kind of describing how they manage to grow this um in a different environment in india so that's fine. We'll put the link to the article there. But what was kind of interesting was the fruit itself, which I hadn't heard of before. It's called monk fruit. Do you know this, Yoram? I've it. It rings a bell, but I can't. No, I I can't say anything about it. But I think so I, it's also luahan guo, luahan guo, um, or siraisia. Grosvenorii. Um, it's it's a gourd plant. It's in the cucurbit family, so that's like pumpkins, um, things like that. And it's originally found in southern China and modern Thailand, as I said. But it just it looks a little bit like a passion fruit from the outside. Um, uh, I would say it's just kind of round and green and not not very exciting looking. But what is cool about this fruit is that it produces a certain substance which is really really sweet so it's a sugar substitute and it's about 250 times sweeter um than sugar and i thought that was really really cool so the 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 sweet chemical is called mogracide um and of course like it can be used as a low calorie sweetener for for things and there's actually like a, a chemical procedure to um, isolate this chemical, which is important because apparently the, the the fruit also makes some kind of nasty, like astringent or bitter flavored substances. So you need to kind of isolate the sweet thing away from the less sweet things. And apparently like way back in the 30s, I think, um, no, not in the 30s, in the 90s, I'm, I'm being very exaggerated today. Um, Procter and Gamble actually 
like patented the way of manufacturing the sweetener from this fruit. So Procter and Gamble is like one of these huge companies that owns like everything. They own like Pringles, but they also own like Oral B. They also own Duracell batteries and Brown. They own like Galette and Tampax and Pampers and Head and Shoulders and Pantene and like perfume for Hugo Boss and like Olay CoverGirl. They're just like one of these massive companies and they also apparently patented the method to take this this sweetener out of this this kind of cool fruit um which in, involves like all this isolation but then you also have to like cook it or pasteurize it to like inactivate like other enzymes and you know very very fancy and as i said i was really excited because i was like wow 250 times sweeter than sucrose is so so cool and I found that out. And then like two seconds later, I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, saccharin, that's kind of the famous sugar substitute that's super, super sweet. And I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what saccharin is. I wonder how much sweeter this is than saccharin. It's not sweeter. As it turns out, saccharin is 300 to 400 times as sweet as sucrose. And it's like, looks to me to be a simpler molecule. At least it's smaller. Maybe it's not simpler, um, chemically speaking. But it was <laughs> like this kind of roller coaster of science. We're like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. It's so sweet. And then you're like, oh no, like, wait, that's actually, it's like basically half as sweet as some other common thing that we already know. And it's. Yeah, but it could be an advantage, <laughs> right? I mean, sometimes like you need like the, the dry weight as well when you use it in certain, like no, when you use it for bacon. chalk. <laughs> but yeah but when you use it for baking um you can't just put like a hundred times less the 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 weight of like your dry ingredients in there because then like the mixture won't be right um so it's actually good if it's less sweet um and then you can use sort of a bigger volume in it in certain contexts but um, yeah, yeah but i think like saccharin you can easily chemically create right it's like yeah, I I don't know, but yeah, but I think it's like a chemical process there. But I mean, there's all kinds of um, new sweetener molecule like uh, things coming from nature. I mean, if you think about stevia, that had this massive uh, spike in attention a couple of years ago. Um, uh, so it could be interesting. That's true. People people are often scared of things that are made in like a reactor or a, a beaker and are really okay with things that were made in a fruit and then went through like an intense chemical process <laughs> to get them pure. And they're like, that one's better. And it's like, is that a logical way of looking at yeah. life? Sure, sure. Yeah. The the monk fruit is the way to go. Um, it's going to be the superfood of the the future. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but I thought it was cool. Um, yeah. It's always nice to learn about new plants that you've never heard of before and just like the amazing things that they're doing. And, you know, I don't I don't know. It must be, be eaten by some some plant that's... Um, helping disperse it. I, I guess that's the reason it would be so sweet. But it also, like, if I was an animal, I'd be super pissed off if something tasted sweet but didn't have the calories associated. Like, the reason we like sweet things is because it's, like, got calorific benefit. Like, it's it's good for us as far as, like, getting that energy. Like, Yeah, but do you sweetness. know, do you know if, uh, if we can digest, um, the the sweet compound in there like if it is it 
what is it like Dennis. dietary accessible because that's then the, the interesting bit um, i mean if it's just sweeter than sugar but also has calories then it's good that you that at least you need less and therefore less calories yeah but i'm thinking no i was thinking more from like the point of view of like if i'm a bird i'm eating fruit to get calories and if i'm eating fruit that is pretending it has calories by being sweet but doesn't actually have the calories i'm losing yeah and over evolutionary time i should be that should select against that right like i wouldn't choose those fruit because they make me less fit um and i remember this study from like ages ago like this is like back into my memories from 10, 15 years ago of like, I think it was shrews. So these like tiny, like mouse, like animals. And they put them with identical foodstuffs, which like tasted the same. It was kind of like a starchy mix, but one of them had more calories than the other. And the, the animals very quickly learned to go for the more calorific one, even though theoretically the taste should be the same to them. So like, this was kind of like the logical idea that you've got a benefit of eating more calories. It's just like, it's a fitness benefit, obviously. Cool, interesting. The monk sugar. Now, what is called the compound? Monk fruit. Monk fruit. Um, uh, the compound is um, mogracide. Cat fact. So, while we should maybe eat more of um, the sweetener substance to uh, reduce our caloric intake and be healthier it could be a good idea to Brilliant also segue. change the diet of your cat but not to make the cat healthier but to protect the local wildlife um, there's been a study um, where they took 355 domestic cats from 219 different homes i actually didn't do the average like how many cats that is on average per home but it's less than two which is to me sounds like not, yeah there <laughs> should be cats yeah that the number should have been over 400 at least um but uh, they observed them for a couple of days to figure out like what their regular behavior is in terms of bringing home animals from the outside so killing birds and ma small mammals when they are outside and bringing them home um and then they changed the diet uh when uh after this observation and um they gave them um, a higher meat content in their diet uh, in their diet so a grain-free protein-rich diet um, and then looked at how they changed their behavior and they also like uh, in another test group they gave them more playtime at home so they they got like a little exercise board where the food was sort of hidden and they had to like play with it to get to the food um and they realized two things. First of all, when they had a grain-free, protein-rich diet, they brought home 36% fewer dead animals than the cats with mm. the unchanged diet. So that, that seemed to work quite that's well. That's a lot of animals. Yeah, that's like a third less animals that are killed in the wild um, by cats because they get like some sort of uh, micronutrients from the meat that they wouldn't get from their regular sort of dry uh, cat food. Um, so that's positive. Um, but the puzzle feeder, so sort of the, the additional toy thing, um, made the cats bring home more prey, <laughs> which uh, they <laughs> speculate it might have come from frustration because the cats were not experienced with the puzzle. They suddenly had to work for their food and then they would just get like their regular food and they would just say like, if I have to like work for my food, then I just get like the fancy stuff from outside, which is the birds and mice that I enjoy eating more. And so they would like be more frustrated at home and compensate that by going outside and killing. Um, or so. they like, they learn skills from the puzzle feeder and that made them better at murder. Like they kind <laughs> of were, well. they learned like more complicated planning skills so they could like set up like, 
you know, intricate comp- uh, intricate um, ambushing scenes or like little traps or something. I mean, I didn't read what the puzzle feeder um, looked like. I mean, it could have been like a little bird that would flap around. He had like catch the bird to get to the food. Yeah. And, like, all blasting and like, oh, <laughs> we accidentally oh, we trained accidentally the murder machine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, but I yeah. think it is. It is important because, like, a lot of cat foods have a lot of grain fillers, which is not necessarily for the benefit of the cat. It's for, like, the cost to the, the food-producing yeah. company. And, like, like cats are not supposed to really eat that many grains, right? Like, that's not their, their They thing. should eat hardly any grain at all, from, from my knowledge. Like, they should just eat, like, meat and protein. Um, but even there are some sort of grain-free diets that have a lot of plant-based protein in them. Um but uh, like like soy protein, for example, but they speculate that like they saw a difference to sort of the meat fat cats still um, that there's like some sort of micronutrients that are not in the proteins from soy, but in the proteins from meat um, that the cats like makes them more um, more happy with their diet. So they don't go out and kill and, and catch catch birds outside. So yeah, bottom line is like feed your cats more meat and give them less puzzles to play if you want to reduce the chance of them killing outside and bringing home dead animals. Uh, which, depending on where you live, that might actually be a very important change because um, yeah. I think here in, in Germany, they also kill a lot of birds, but they kill a lot of birds that are quite... Uh, like They're not endangered, like sparrows and, and, and tits and stuff that are um, yeah on no endangered list. So... It's sad, but it doesn't destroy an ecosystem. But in many other places, I mean, I'm, I'm telling... Shout like, out I'm, Australia. <laughs> yes. They are wreaking havoc on ecosystems. So if even... Yeah. It, so in these places, it should... like if you, you shouldn't let your cat out in the first place. But if you let your cat out, at least try to do everything you can at home to make... To reduce the chance that it, it goes out and kill. And kills. Yeah. So that's a cat fact. That's it for today. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on all of the social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me that's at Plants Pipettes. On Instagram and on Facebook, it's at Plants and Pipettes. That's usually me. We also have a website that's plantsandpipettes.com uh, where you find one to two articles every week about the fascinating world of plant science. And as always, um, give us comments, reach out to us on any of those media, tell us what you like, what you don't like. Give us cool plant facts so we don't have to do our homework. We always like that. Um, yes, please. Yeah, and, and do give us some some feedback. It always feels really nice when somebody says things about us. It's like kind of yeah. brings a nice, it's a nice thing in our day. And I just wanted to mention um, <laughs> dirty details on Instagram. So um, somebody asked on Instagram, what cool podcasts were and they said uh, that they're really hooked on plants and pipettes so thank you very much for those kind words um, and spreading the word about our podcast that was very sweet yeah thank you so much uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross and that's it goodbye bye bye